Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And North Korea's foreign minister has ridiculed President Trump's threat to annihilate his isolated state. Well, he told reporters at the United Nations General Assembly that Trump's threat is akin to the sound of a dog barking. His comments came a day after President Trump threatened to wipe out North Korea. Well, joining us now from Berlin is Wolfgang Ichinger, Munich Security Conference chairman. Chairman, thank you so much for joining us. We're delighted to have you on uh, air on this important, important week. Let me actually kick off with Iran. If if Donald Trump and the U.S. do decide to abandon the deal with Iran, what does Europe do? Well, first of all, let's let's hope uh, this is only hot air, and um, and it's not yet decided. That's what I hope uh, that the United States will walk away from the Iran deal. If if the United States walks away from the Iran deal, uh, this will be a major setback. Uh, in various uh, dimensions. First of all, it will, will be a major setback for the role and the credibility of the United States in international politics. Second, it will be a major setback for our effort to uh, keep Iran um, under wraps uh, for the next decade or so. Because if the U.S. walks away, Iran may walk away and we may have the re-emergence uh, of nuclear activities. And third, and most importantly, uh, if the U.S. walks away from the Iran deal, how uh, are we ever going to explain to North Korea that it would be better to negotiate with the international community, including with the United States, than to build more missiles and, um, and, and, and nuclear weapons? Right. Um, the lesson from the U.S. walking away to North Korea will be just keep doing what you're doing. Right, That's who, terrible. German, who can actually defuse the situation? And again, is there a specific role that Europe can play, can play mediating this? Well, I think the message needs to be, I'm, I'm, it's, this is not a happy message, and, and as, as, a, as a confirmed, you know, transatlantic person, I'm really sorry to say this. I think we would need, we the Europeans would need to say to the United States, if you think that you're going to reinstate sanctions against Iran, you'll have to do it without us. You'll be really America alone. Um, and that will create, of course, all sorts of business and economic and political tensions. Is that what President Trump really needs at this point? I wonder. Ambassador, it is wonderful to have you with us today. I want to go back to your inter international relations study at Tufts Fletcher School of years and years ago. I would assume right now is not in the textbooks. What would you like to see in leadership capabilities from Secretary Tillerson? Well, I th first of all, I think that, um, you know, speaking tough to dictators is not uh, often by itself uh, always wrong. But, um, and in that sense, uh, I would, uh, uh, a week ago, if you had asked me, I would have said uh, Donald Trump and the Trump administration has scored um, a success 
in getting a unanimous decision at the United Nations on North Korea and getting the sanctions enhanced. So, uh, you know, I am not against uh, a tough position. Right. But, uh, but what, is, uh, what, what my textbook would suggest is that you, if, you put, if you want to put pressure uh, on Iran or on North Korea or on Russia for that matter, you've got to show them uh, the door through which they can uh, walk out of the room or come into your conference room. Uh, pressure alone, threats right. alone, are not going to work unless you show them there is going, going to be an incentive if they follow your, your proposal. Well, you mentioned that you're a confirmed... And the incentive is lacking. You, you mentioned you're a confirmed transatlantic person. Does President Trump uh, risk giving up all of the gains from the days of the Atlantic Charter? Well, I think that uh, we have um, a historic um, phenomenon of change here. You see, for the last 60 or more years, uh, my country has celebrated the fact that after World War II, we have finally joined the West. And who exactly, what exactly is the West? The West, for us in Germany, has been symbolized by the President of the United States. My generation admired John F. Kennedy. The younger generation admired Barack Obama. Remember, 200,000 Germans came when he spoke, right. and he was only a candidate at the time. So what I think uh, is now happening is that we are losing that symbol of the West, which, which used to be undisputedly the President of the United States. I cannot explain to my children that they should think of President Trump as the leader of the West, the, the, the person that represents the values of dignity, of, of human freedom uh, that the West stands for. That, that is a very serious problem. A remarkable statement, Ambassador. So then, if Angela Merkel is reaffirmed as a chancellor of a new Germany, do you suggest that she should project internationally, as we saw from Conrad Adenauer in another time in place? Is Merkel the one that has to push the West dialogue forward? Well, let me be very frank uh, about this. There is no way that Germany or Germany and France or Germany, France and the UK could replace the leadership role of the United States. We need the United States. We need the U.S. presence in Europe. We need American involvement in uh, the Middle East, in the areas of tension surrounding Europe. So even if we have serious, rather fundamental disagreements, there is no alternative to close cooperation. And I think uh, we, we, will, we will simply need to do everything we can to uh, work as closely as possible with the U.S. And of course, working with the U.S. means not only working with the White House. There are 50 states. There are governors, there are senators, there are congressmen, and many of them know uh, that some of the jobs in their districts, but in their states, uh, are owed to uh, investments from uh, European companies. So there are many, many areas through which we can work together, even if 
the going is going to be a little rougher than it used to be between the White House Chairman, and the European chancelleries. Uh, away from the symbols that you were talking about, do you believe, amongst all the noise, that the Trump administration is actually fully committed to transatlantic defense, or do you believe that the alliance has lost credibility? So it's not symbolism, but has it actually lost power? Um, I have always felt that, uh, of course, words are important, but facts uh, and action is even more important. And if you look at the facts and the action, there, there can be no doubt that the United States um, uh, remains committed to uh, transatlantic solidarity, to NATO, to the famous Article 5. Let's not forget the current reinforcement, uh, military no. reinforcements that have taken place in the Baltic states, etc., etc., have been led not by France or Germany or the UK, but by the United States. So I, in my own mind, there's no doubt that uh, the United States is a, a firm uh, leader and partner in the North Atlantic Alliance. Uh, but of course, uh, some of the tweets and some of the talk that we heard uh, during the campaign and earlier this year wasn't really uh, very helpful. Ambassador, thank you so much. We look forward to meeting with you in our London and New York studios within your travels. Uh, Ambassador Issinger, of course, with us this morning from uh, Berlin. Stephen Roach joining us now, as I said, uh, senior fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, and before that, the chief economist uh, at Morgan Stanley, Stephen Roach, great to have you with us. Let's start with just the import of this decision. I mentioned that Moody's did this a few months back, and uh, my sense is that uh, this was telegraphed here. This was this was going to happen. Well, I, again, David, as I said to Tom, um, it was hardly a surprise. I mean, um, you know, rating agencies are lagging, not leading indicators. We've all known about the debt-intensive uh, issues in China, including the Chinese, and they're very focused on uh, financial stability and in delevering, the biggest challenge for China, I think, is uh, not uh, you know, a debt crisis as we saw in Asia because they have a huge domestic savings rate. They owe the debt to themselves. The biggest challenge is to get their state-owned enterprises, which have been leading the charge in uh, debt-intensive growth, uh, to reduce their appetite uh, for credit. And this is a, a fundamental issue that I think um, – will be addressed uh, by the, um, uh, the party leaders at the upcoming party congress uh, in uh, uh, mid-October. Dealing with state-owned enterprise reform is at the core of the Chinese control uh, issue and in managing um, uh, the role of these companies uh, in a, what is still a, a blended uh, Chinese economy. I gather that that Congress is scheduled to begin in just about a, a month's time. October 18th. What's the what's the appetite for uh, the kind of reforms you're talking about? Are we are we seeing an increased appetite for dealing with the SOEs? Yeah, that's a, g a great question. I think you know there's a real you tug never of say war. That to me. <laughs> Only Guri has the great questions. <laughs> there's a real real tug of war in China between the role of the state uh, and the, the 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 role of markets. The Chinese want to sort of manage this balancing act uh, in a, a very delicate way, uh, maintaining their own unique um, blend of state and market-driven 
systems. And, you know, we in the West say, you know, come on, it's not going to work. You got to cut the cord and let markets uh, uh, drive the outcome. And the Chinese say, we think we can do both. And, you know, there's no clear uh, verdict yet in this balancing act. And yet we do know that uh, the state-owned enterprises um, uh, are, um, well, they've diminished in terms of importance, in terms of employment. Uh, they're still a, a very significant piece of the Chinese model. I, I, I want one more question on China before we get to uh, what we've been talking about all morning, which is Steve Roach and basically wonderful economics 101 discussion of savings investment and, of course, central bank theory as well. Do you suggest that China will adapt and adjust to the president of the United States? Is that what a nation does? Or do they become China-like almost out of Jonathan Spence, where they look at the continuum of four or eight or 10 or 50 years and just ignore this moment in the United States of America? Which is it? You know, well, the, the book I wrote on the U.S. and China a few years ago is one of codependency, where we depend on them and they depend on us. So they can't afford to ignore uh, their most important uh, economic partner, nor can we afford uh, to ignore them. In the same sense, um, <clears throat> they're not going to let their perceptions of um, this relationship uh, be uh, continually uh, disturbed by, you know, the latest tweet and bluster coming out of um, our, our president. Uh, and I think, you know, they, they have managed this uh, uh, relationship um, uh, extremely well since the, the president uh, took office on January 20th and moving into this very sensitive political season uh, for the, the Chinese. I think they're going to uh, stay very steady uh, and <clears throat> looking through the noise that comes out of Washington. Was the press conference yesterday a lot of noise? Uh, from Chair Yellen, I think, you know, it was um, still very, very focused on uh, the interplay between normalization uh, and inflation. And I think that the Fed has a really tough time letting go of um, – it's inflation-targeting mindset, even though there's no inflation to really target. Tell us a bit more about that, that interplay there. I guess it's the, the old uh, argument, can they walk and chew gum at the, the same time? I was struck yesterday listening to the press conference and looking at the statement how little was devoted to the balance sheet uh, unwind. They'd telegraphed or laid out how this process is going to work or how they hope it'll work. Uh, are, are they giving each equal weight, I guess, is, is my question. What do we know about the interplay between the two? Well, I, I think... Um, they have made an important decision, David, and that is to um, uh, begin what's going to be a long and drawn-out process of getting this balance sheet uh, back, They, I guess they say now, a little bit above its pre-crisis uh, level. But, you know, this is going to take uh, years and years uh, of, of time to do. And, uh, you know, I'm not, it's not clear to me that, you know, they have the luxury of, of, of that time. Uh, if there's one thing we learned from the um, uh, sort of the buildup to the uh, the great financial crisis of um, 08 and 09 was that a, a long and drawn out normalization post dot com bubble uh, was really the uh, sowed the seeds of the excesses that were mm. uh, building back then. And, you know, you'd think that the central bank would say 
wait a second, is there a lesson there that we need to pay attention to? That, you know, this idea that we have the luxury of time to keep uh, the, you know, monetary policy uh, at unusual settings uh, because inflation's low may not necessarily be the right conclusion to draw from that period or uh, and impose it on this period. So I, I worry that uh, we, we haven't really, uh, we don't really appreciate uh, that, that, uh, the lessons of that experience. When it comes to central bank introspection, uh, what are we losing with Stan Fisher's uh, departure? He's somebody who <laughs> knows monetary policy so acutely and, and so deeply. Uh, are, are we looking at uh, perhaps even, even less uh, introspection going forward here with his departure next month? I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, in Stan Fisher, you have somebody who has got a wealth of experience, um, a, a man who has, uh, you know, written textbooks on macroeconomics, who's taught um, uh, generations of central bankers himself in the classroom, a man who's made mistakes. Uh, certainly, uh, when he was at the IMF uh, in the late 1990s, uh, and hopefully, is uh, himself is is, is learned. Uh, from uh, the mistakes that the IMF made uh, uh, during that period. But it's a wealth of experience that uh, he brings yeah. to bear. Uh, and when, when he goes, you know, does the institutional memory stay? Yeah, but his ultra-accommodated is the same as Steve Roach's, maybe for different reasons, but you both want to get there faster. Are, are we going to see that by the end of 2018? Do you have any optimism quickly here? Do we do we get there by November, December of a year from now? No way, Tom. I mean, I, I don't think we get there faster, and I think that's that's a problem because the longer it takes to get back to normal, uh, the more the power of excess liquidity and distorting asset prices remains a real force yeah. in, in in creating what potentially could be the next financial crisis. Stephen Roach, thank you so much, particularly comments on China uh, with the news of the rate reduction that we saw uh, this morning. Dr. Roach is with Yale University. Stephen Roach staring at me like, Tom, what are you, nuts? Let's go down to the physics of economics. Long ago and far away, Steve, you had the courage to say original balance sheet macroeconomics matters, savings and its relationship to investment matters. Everyone now talks on the income side, GDP statement, of the dearth of investment. Link that core equation of investment and savings together, given the lack of investment today in America. Well, the best number, Tom, is the uh, what I call the net national savings rate. It's the um, savings of uh, individuals, businesses, and the government sector strip out depreciation that goes for mm-hmm. the wear and tear of, my of our existing capital stock. Uh, and you find that the America's net national savings rate uh, and is, is now uh, about 1.9% of GDP, uh, which is pathetically low. It compares with a six and a quarter percent average in the final three decades of the 20th century. Uh, and it, you know, the, the onion just keeps um, uh, the layers of the onion keep peeling away. When you look at that, Lacking in saving and wanting to consume and grow, we've got to import surplus savings from abroad, uh, and that means we run these massive um, uh, current account and, by the way, multilateral trade deficits with over 100 countries around the world. So the Trump administration says, oh, we've got this big deficit with China. We don't like uh, Mm -hmm. trade deficits. Let's let's fix the trade deficit with China. If we don't save— and we and we eliminate the trade deficit with China. Uh, the Chinese piece goes to other 
right. uh, uh, training partners, and that taxes the American workers. Classic Steve Roach, folks, and ignored now in about 80% of Econ 101 courses, I would editorialize as well. Steve, let me go to a second or third order condition of this, which is why should I save if interest rates, the, the visible rate or the inflation-adjusted rate, if they're so low, what's my incentive to save? That's not a primary condition, but it's, it's, it's not much, right? Not much, but again, it goes back to the point we talked about earlier, you know, with the central bank uh, in the market crushing returns for savers, yeah. uh, there is no incentive Steve, to save. So up. get the Fed out of the markets. Give us not just normal policy rates, right. but normal returns on saving, Tom, so you will have something to live on when you stop Steve, doing this for I, a living. I, Steve, I'm tearing up. David Gura just wrote, uh, wrote down on his piece of paper a Marshallian cross. I, I can't believe is it. That what that that's is that what That's your first <laughs> Marshallian cross. Oh. <laughs> Folks, that was brilliant theory with Dr. Roach. Seriously, David. Steve Roach, any indications that's happening? Any indications that we're moving on that path to the kind of changes you're, you're, uh, you're prescribing? Well, again, David, you know, the, the uh, discussion <clears throat> yesterday by the Fed and, the, you know, they've got a memo talking about normalization. You know, we may get there, uh, maybe not in my lifetime, but in your lifetime, uh, the Fed is committed to normalizing uh, its, its balance sheet. In the meantime, what are, you know, poor savers like Tom uh, supposed to do? And, you know, the, again, the, the Fed, <clears throat> by uh, uh, being so active uh, in uh, uh, injecting liquidity in, into risky markets uh, encourages investors to take more risk than otherwise might be the case. Uh, and this is another uh, sort of systemic problem uh, with their, their strategy of quantitative easing. When, when you look at trade policy in this, in this country, do you, do you think there are members of this administration who get what you're saying about the, the need for companies to look to external demand versus domestic demand at, at this point? Are there, is there growing nuance to the discussion about trade, or, or is it still where it was five, six months ago? I don't think there's much enlightened uh, view on looking at trade policy in the broader context. This is a, uh, you know, a, a, an administration that takes um, – takes its uh, instructions from a deal-focused president. He looks at trade on a transactional basis, country by country, uh, failing to appreciate the fact that last year, David, we had trade deficits with 101 countries. This is a multilateral problem. It's not a country by country problem. And when you, you, when you recognize that, you know, the multilateral dimensions of this, it has to come from somewhere. And that goes back to the savings point that I just made with uh, uh, Tom uh, and the Trump, the Trump administration and now the Republicans in the Senate say, we don't really care about deficits anymore. If they get bigger, it's no big deal. Well, if the deficits get bigger, the savings rate gets lower, the multilateral problem gets worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, um, uh, there's really no real appreciation uh, for the right. well, uh, fundamentals of this issue in this administration. The bell just rang. Look for the homework assignment. You can do that when you're in your class notes. Stephen Roach, thank you so much from Yale University. A pop quiz tomorrow.
David Gura and Tom Keen here in New York in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. A pleasure now to be joined by someone who sits on the Senate Armed Services Committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as well as we uh, look at this headline crossing the Bloomberg. President Trump saying uh, to expect more sanctions on North Korea uh, later today. Tim Kaine, the junior senator from the state Commonwealth uh, of Virginia, uh, of course, uh, former vice presidential candidate as well, joining us on our phone lines. Senator Kaine, great to have you with us. This is an issue that's deviled uh, us here in the U.S. for a very long time. The president here talking about uh, further sanctions. Uh, Are you convinced that this is the way forward? More sanctioning? Is there a diplomatic solution in sight, do you think? Well, there could be a diplomatic solution, but here's here's where we draw the line. I voted for a recent Iran sanctions package that was contained with sanctions against North Korea and um, and Russia as well. But very clearly, this was focused on Iran's activity outside the scope of the nuclear agreement we have with Iran that Iran is complying with. So if Iran is violating U.N. Security Council resolutions on its missile program, then there ought to be sanctions for that. And we have given the president the power to impose those sanctions. What would be a disastrous mistake would be if the president were to decertify uh, Iran's compliance with the nuclear agreement we reached with them. The International Atomic Energy uh, Agency says Iran is complying with that deal. Um, the other nations, our allies that work with us on the deal, they believe Iran is complying. And if the U.S. unilaterally backs out of the deal, uh, three bad things will happen. Iran will start racing toward nuclear weapons again, which they were. Um, second, our credibility in getting other nations to help us with sanctions on other activities will be dramatically weakened because people will not trust that the U.S. will honor our diplomatic commitment. And third, and maybe the most frightening, is the Trump administration is trying to find a diplomatic resolution to North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Um, Secretary Mattis and others always say it's diplomacy first. We're never out of diplomatic options. That's what we want to prefer. But if the U.S pulls out of a nuclear deal with Iran when Iran is in compliance, it will eliminate the chance that North Korea would ever Mm. enter into a diplomatic deal with the United States because they'd say, why would we enter a diplomatic deal? The U.S. will just pull out of it a year or two later. So this is very high-stakes stuff. And if the president were to decertify the Iran deal, I think it would be disastrous for the security of our country and the world. And indeed, a great, uh, important piece by Mark Landler of the New York Times on that very issue uh, out today, uh, well worth worth reading. I wonder what kind of conversations you've had, if I can pivot here a little bit to talk about health care with the governor of the Commonwealth, Terry McAuliffe, about the the prospects for Graham-Cassidy becoming law. Of course, I'm sure you're watching the the goings-on in your Senate, as we we all are here. If that were to come to pass, what would it mean for the Commonwealth of Virginia if the the funding structure were to be changed as radically as proposed there uh, under this piece of legislation? Yep. Governor McAuliffe uh, has signed a letter with, I think, a dozen other governors, equally Democratic and Republican, opposing Graham-Cassidy. So here's what it means for Virginia, sort of in, in three buckets. First, the Affordable Care Act currently protects you if you have a pre-existing health condition. An, um, uh, an insurance company must write you a policy and can't treat you unfairly in your rates. Uh, the Graham-Cassidy bill would allow states to waive essential health benefits, which means you might get a policy if you have a pre-existing condition, but the insurance company could say, but we're not going to cover your condition. So you're a diabetic. Yeah, I'll write you a policy, but we won't cover insulin. Or you're a a woman, I'll write you a policy, but we won't cover maternity. If your pre-existing condition is not covered, then you have no yeah. protection. So that's going to hurt every Virginian that has a pre-existing condition, and it's causing great angst. Second, um, there's a proposal in the funds that currently go to states 
uh, under the Affordable Care Act, which is largely either Medicaid expansion monies or premium assistance to help lower-income people afford insurance, you would reduce those funds by $240 billion nationally over the next 10 years, and then you would eliminate all the funds. Virginia, because of this complicated block grant formula, gets a temporary boost, but you can't take $240 billion out of the system without driving up premiums for people, and in 10 years, all the money goes away and Virginia gets hurt. Third thing, though, is the real, I think, the real big problem, and it's a hidden problem in this bill. For some reason, the Republicans, they're talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act, but they want to go after the Medicaid program, which existed before the Affordable Care Act. So they're capping Medicaid expenditures that will take $120 billion out of Medicaid over the next 10 years and more thereafter. That would hurt Virginia a lot. About 60% of our Medicaid recipients are kids. If you're just joining us now, a senator from Virginia who released 145,000 emails, which came up to the summary, Tim Kaine is a policy wonk. We can Continue. <laughs> Senator Kane, you know, I, I picked this out and you and I were on the same page, which is David Leonard in the New York Times on the senator from Arizona Yeah. for for, you know, and you're on the other side of the aisle, blah, blah, blah. This is real drama and emotion. What will you look for from John McCain and the next few days on our medical America? Um, D- David Leonard's piece this morning is really good because he basically said John McCain changed the dynamic in the Senate when he came back, diagnosed with brain cancer, time in a hospital with a whole lot of people, came back to a standing ovation and basically said to the Senate, on health care and on everything else, let's start really acting like a Senate again. Let's have hearings and consider amendments and have debate. And that will mean compromise, but that will be for the good of the country. And, and he called for that. And because the bill that was on the floor in August had not gone through any of the procedures that he said we needed to do, he voted against it. Well, now there's a rush. And, and you guys know this. I'm on the Health Committee, and Lamar Alexander, after the failure of the vote in, in August, he and Patty Murray have pulled together a series of hearings, bipartisan governors, insurance commissioners, patients, hospitals. And we have basic, the basics of a deal bipartisan to stabilize the individual insurance market and then engage in a longer-term discussion about how we fix, not destroy health care. But two days ago, the president and Speaker Ryan and Mitch McConnell basically torpedoed the bipartisan effort. They said, we don't want that. We want a partisan-only repeal vote on, on uh, Graham-Cassidy. And so Senator McCain is going to be confronted, as are others, with this, this you know, dilemma. We called for a fair process there hasn't okay. been a fair process. What should we do? What, what, whatever anybody supports Senator Kane, you know, you were in a rush. You got through Missouri in three years, summa cum laude, and, you know, you went on to Harvard Law and all that. I get the idea of a Tim Kane rush. Why are we in such a rush in Washington? I, just as an American, why can't we, I don't want to get back to Howard Baker and Sam Irvin, yeah. but why, what's the rush, Senator? Well, there there shouldn't be a rush. I mean, if we're, if we're thinking about people, we wouldn't rush. Health care is the most important expenditure you ever make with a dollar in your pocket. And second, it's the biggest sector of the American economy. If you screw it up, you screw up a big, you know, a, a big swath of the nation's GDP. The reason that there is a, quote, rush is there is a budget instruction that's out on the table that says a matter that is, quote, purely budgetary can be resolved by a, a simple majority vote. 50 plus a tiebreaker, as long as it's done before September 30th. 
then that instruction expires. And at that point, you could only legislate on health care under traditional Senate order. You'd need to get 60 votes, which means hmm. that uh, the radical notion, if we're going to do something on health care, we ought to try to find a little bit of bipartisan agreement before we take steps. I actually think that's a good thing. The House goes majority rule, but in the Senate, you've got to find some bipartisan agreement. And since health care is neither Democratic nor Republican, um, finding bipartisan agreement is a good thing. But they want to try to rush it through with 50 votes and a tiebreaker. Frankly, Mitch McConnell says so we don't have to work with Democrats in coming up with the solution. That's not a good answer. Too short with you today. Thank you very much for the time. That's Senator Tim Kaine, former vice presidential candidate as well, the junior senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia. I would love to have him back to talk more about uh, social politics in this country as well. Of course, he wandered that terrain trod by Thomas Jefferson in Albemarle County after those terrible incidents in Charlottesville in August and would love to talk to him about the healing process in Virginia. Hope we can talk to the senator again soon. Grateful for him joining us here on our phone lines. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.